Let me invite you to grab your Bible and turn with me to Romans chapter 16. I grew up in a Baptist church, and not just any Baptist church, but I grew up in First Baptist Church. So just in case like anyone else thought they were first, no, we put it in the name, okay? We put it on the building. We were first, we won. And there were some people in our church who really thought that, I think. But that traditional, that Southern Baptist style of church, that was all I knew. And that was what I thought every other church in America looked like. I thought every other church was just like mine. They all sang the same songs and had the same wooden pews and listened to the same kinds of sermons. And then one day, I visited a Pentecostal church. (laughs) And I found out that that was different. And then I visited a Methodist church. That was different. And I found out there are a lot of different kinds of churches out there. There are big churches and small churches, old churches and new churches, contemporary churches and traditional churches, black, white, Asian, Hispanic, and even cowboy churches, liturgical churches and charismatic churches, house churches and mega churches, seeker-friendly churches and secret churches. Country churches and city churches, churches in barns and churches in bars. (laughs) There are a lot of churches out there. And if you've ever moved to a new place and had to find a new church that fits your family, you, you know that. But what makes a good church, sorry, what makes a church a good church, a healthy church? What sort of markers would we look to identify one? Well, fortunately, the Bible tells us what constitutes a healthy, God-glorifying church. Now, it doesn't tell us everything we might want to know. It doesn't tell us how big or small a church should be. It doesn't tell us what style of music to play. It doesn't tell us how long our services should be, how they should be structured. But I do believe we can know today what a healthy biblical church is and what it should look like. And there's a lot we could say on this topic for sure. We could spend a lot of time looking at the different markers of a healthy church. But this morning, I want to focus on one key marker of a good, biblical, healthy church. In fact, I think this is the most important marker of all of them. Here it is. It's this. A healthy, God-glorifying, biblical church is a gospel church. Here's what I mean by that designator. I say gospel church. This is a church that is built upon, centered around, driven by, focused on the message about Jesus Christ and the implications of that message. The gospel, I say often, is the good news that Jesus saves. It's the message of hope that the world needs to hear. And while we could say many things about a healthy biblical church, I believe the most important is that it treasures and values above everything else that gospel message about Jesus. A healthy church is a gospel church. At the end of the book of Romans, we get a small picture into a gospel church and what it looks like. The Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter, he closes his letter to the Roman church, as he often did, with with some greetings and a few final words to share. And while a lot of times we might blow through the closing of a letter and skip over the list of names, there's actually a lot here that we can mine out, especially when it comes to learning about the church in Rome, a church that Paul thought so highly of that he couldn't wait to visit them and that he needed to gain their support for his mission to Spain. 
So as we walk through this final chapter of Romans, I want to show you this morning four things. Four things we can learn about a gospel church. But first, I want to read through this chapter in its entirety, the whole thing. So stand with me as we honor the reading of God's word. And bear with me as I try to pronounce some of these names. But this is Romans chapter 16, verse 1. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sincrea, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Apanatus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachys. Greet Apellus, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother, Cordus, greet you. Now to him, who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. And we all say together, amen. amen. You can be seated. Man, some of those were tough. Uh, as my wife and I think about baby names, I don't think we're going to add Philologus to the list. But uh, <laughs> here's the first thing this morning. We can learn about a gospel church. You ready? Number one, a gospel church is diverse. Let's look first at this list of greetings here. Paul spends 16 verses calling out people that he wanted the Roman church to greet for him. And this was not unusual for him to do. He often concluded his letters with specific greetings. But what is unique here is the number of people that he chooses to name. 
Remember, Paul had not personally visited his church. He didn't know all these people, but he did know some of them. Others he'd heard some things about, and he he wanted to use the greetings to make a connection with this church. So in these verses, Paul lists 26 individuals, two families, and three house churches. And again, we might be tempted to just breeze right over this section, but there's actually a lot of interesting information in these names. And we could take a lot of time here and kind of analyze each of the people, who they might have been. I encourage you, if you want to use your study Bible later, you should find out some interesting stuff. But I just want to highlight one specific aspect of this group of people in the church, and that's their diversity. This is a diverse list of people serving in the early church. And let me show you what I mean by that word. First, look at the name at the top of the list. Arguably, the most important name here, it's the name Phoebe. She is the only person in this list who's not actually a part of the greeting, but rather she is commended. What does that mean? Why is Paul commending her? Well, this is the only time we learn about Phoebe in the Bible, but what we learn in these few short verses is a really big deal. First off, it's significant that Phoebe was a woman. Women in the first century world did not hold an equal status to men. They were viewed as less than and treated often as such. So for a woman to be commended by the Apostle Paul in this letter, in this way, that's a big deal. It's another example of how Christianity empowered women in the first century. That's why it's it's nonsense when people today talk about how oppressive Christianity is to women. That couldn't be further from the truth. Jesus in the early church gave first century women opportunities they had nowhere else in society. And that was really controversial. Women in this time were not even allowed to learn from a rabbi, and yet we know Jesus had women disciples. It was even radical at this time for Jesus to speak to a woman, much less teach them and send them out with his resurrection message. The early church also recognized women as being made in the image of God, as being equal in value and worth to men. And women have historically played pivotal roles in the ministry and the mission of the church And Phoebe is a great example of that. We know Phoebe played some sort of important role in her church in a town called Sincrea, which was not far from where Paul was writing this. Paul describes her as a servant of the church. Now, there's some debate here about that word servant because that word servant can also be translated deacon. Or for Phoebe, we would say deaconess. Just like English, right? Sometimes words have multiple meanings. So obviously... Christians have done what they like to do. They've argued for some time about whether Phoebe was an official deaconess or not and what that means today. And unfortunately, we don't have time to get into all the nuances of the debate. I'll just say here at Blue Valley, the office of deacon is reserved for men. But in other Baptist churches with very similar beliefs to ours, they do have women serving faithfully as deacons. Now, the truth is we don't know for sure if Phoebe was an official deaconess or not. And we don't even know at this point in the early church how developed the office of deacon was like it is today. I think, honestly, I think there's a case to be made either way. So this is a great time for me to give every pastor's favorite answer to a difficult question. Scholars are divided on this. (laughs) What we do know is that Phoebe was a leader in her church. Right? Whether she had a title or not, she would have been well-known and highly respected. We, we know that she would have been highly respected because it's very likely, get this, that she was the one who delivered the letter to Rome. 
Notice Paul tells the Roman church to welcome her. This is the most likely reason Paul commended her. When people in the ancient world traveled, often what they would do, they would carry letters of recommendation. You couldn't just like go on Facebook to figure out someone who someone was like you can today. But that way, when someone needed a place to stay or they needed some help on the road with supplies, they could pull out the letter of reference and say, look at here. And believers at this time, they would have seen the name of Paul recommending Phoebe, and they would have known she deserved their help. Think for a minute, though, about how big of a job this would have been. This is in a time there were no copy machines, okay? No USB drives, no wireless cloud systems to save your file to somewhere out there. There was one copy of the book of Romans, and Phoebe was the one entrusted to get it to its recipients. Man, what a massive responsibility, and apparently she did it. She did it. We also know that Phoebe was financially well off. Paul describes her as a patron of many and of him. This means that likely she used her resources, her means to support missionaries when they traveled through her community. So just these two verses, we we see that Phoebe was an exceptional woman of God. Paul trusted her, and as a result, he sent her on a very important mission with his personal stamp of approval. And we, too, should be grateful for her today. Otherwise, we might not have this letter. The next names we see are also significant. Prisca is also called in other books Priscilla. And her husband, Aquila, the dynamic rhyming duo. They were a married couple. And this couple, they were great friends with Paul because they're both tent makers. They both went around starting churches and hosting churches in their home. And at some point, Paul says they even saved his life. So obviously he thought highly of them. They're important figures in the early church. And we could keep going here name by name. We won't, we won't do that this morning. But we simply see in the rest of this letter what we see is a diverse group of people. Some of them were Jews, some of them were Gentiles. Some were men, some were women. Some were married, some were likely single. Some who were well off and some we know were slaves. Some who were brand new Christians and some who even came to faith before Paul. Some who were leaders who had great influence and some who we know next to nothing about. And even someone's mama gets a special shout out. Did you see that? We see that the churches in Rome were filled with all kinds of people doing all kinds of great ministry for the Lord. And this is a byproduct of a gospel church. Think about it. Paul's explained all throughout this whole letter how the gospel is for all people. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All stand condemned under God's judgment. All were covered by the blood of Jesus on the cross. And all can be saved if they will trust in Christ. If the gospel is for all, if it's for everyone, then it makes sense that the church would be made up of everyone. So the local church should be a place where there's people from all walks of life, people from different ethnicities, different generations and different classes, different giftings, different callings and different vocations, different personalities, different passions and different family structures. A gospel church is a place where all those people who would otherwise have nothing else in common who would not be affiliated with one another in any other place in society, are somehow joined together in Christ. Every other label, every other identity marker the world puts on us becomes secondary to our shared identity in Christ. It's not that we ignore race or age or gender 
Rather, those things are no longer what supremely define our identities, but we are first and foremost children of God. And it's not that we become just one big identical blob of people. Rather, our diverse qualities remain and they become a testimony of God's grace. We become a kaleidoscope to the glory of God. A healthy biblical church is a gospel church. And Romans 16 shows us first that a gospel church is diverse. It's number one. Here's the second thing we learn. Number two, a gospel church is vigilant. And so after the long list of greetings, Paul adds in something here that isn't usually a part of his closing words in the letter. He adds in this warning against false teachers. Another reason this seems a bit out of place is because Paul hasn't said anything in this letter about the Roman Christians dealing with false teachers. So it seems here that this is kind of a preemptive warning. Uh, Based on Paul's experience and his other churches, we know from reading his other letters, dealing with false teachers was inevitable. So he simply tells the Roman church, hey, watch out. Even though you may not have any issues with these guys right now and things might be going well, you need to be on the lookout. And here's who he says they need to watch out for. Those who cause divisions and those who create obstacles. It's a great summary of what we learn in the New Testament about false teachers. First, they cause divisions. What they teach in the church is divisive. It doesn't build up and strengthen, but it tears apart. It creates problems. It pits people against each other. And second, false teachers create obstacles to the gospel. They add to or they take away or they twist the gospel message so that it's different. It's no longer grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone. But now it's Jesus plus you got to do this too. Or Jesus plus you got to think about this too. Paul says further that these kinds of people are smooth talkers. They're popular. They sound good. People like them. But they're not serving Jesus. They're serving themselves. So Paul says, watch out. Watch out. Gospel church, we have to be vigilant. And here's how he challenges the Christians in Rome. He says, I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. This is very similar to what Jesus told us in Matthew 10. Jesus said, behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as what? Doves, right? So in order to be vigilant, we need wisdom. We need to know the wisdom of Scripture so we can discern what is true and what is false. And then we need to be innocent so that we stay away from what we know to be evil. A gospel church is vigilant. If we truly value and treasure the gospel above everything else, then we have to protect it. When it comes to the gospel, we cannot budge one inch. It has to be the hill we die on. And anything that would be contrary to this message, anything that would distort it, anything that would try and take its place as the center of our church, we have to reject it. Knowing that ultimately, as we see in verse 20, one day, the God of peace will crush Satan under our feet. Man, I look for that day. But until then, we continue to cling to and guard the gospel. It's the second thing we learn about a gospel church. Here's a third. The gospel church is networked. It's networked. What does that mean? Well, it simply means that a gospel church is connected. It's working with other individuals and churches and ministries to accomplish its mission. We see that clearly in the life and ministry of Paul. In this next section, verses 21 to 23, Paul begins to give greetings to the Roman church on behalf of the people he's with. 
And this shows us that Paul did not travel alone. He was not a solo Christian or a solo missionary. He was not a lone ranger, but he networked with others for the sake of the mission. Let's look for a minute at some of those who, who Paul was traveling with when he wrote the book of Romans. First, we see a guy by the name of Timothy. Timothy was Paul's main man, his BFF, his closest friend, his co-worker in the gospel. He traveled with him on several missionary journeys, and we know that was someone Paul really invested in. He wrote him two letters, First and Second Timothy. We know those. After Timothy, we have three other guys we don't know a whole lot about who were also traveling and working with Paul. And then we have Tertius, who just like had to get his credit, didn't he? He's like, hey, I wrote this letter. It's me, shout out. But Now, some of you may read that and think, wait a second, I thought Paul wrote this letter. You said that like every Sunday for a year. Well, there's no reason to get tripped up here. In this time, a lot of times when people wrote letters, they used the secretary. So Tertius was doing what Paul said. Paul spoke, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Tertius dictated it, and that's how we have the letter of Romans. Next, we have a man by the name of Gaius who Paul says hosted him in the entire church. This means Gaius would have been someone who was financially wealthy. So there were wealthy people in the early church, people who used their resources and their means for the church. Then we have Erastus, who was the city treasurer. So there are also political leaders, people in high regard in society who were a part of the church. And then lastly, we have Cordus, who, sad, we know nothing about. Sorry, Cordus. Again, the point here is that Paul was well-connected. He traveled with others to do ministry together. He stayed with people. He benefited from their resources. And then he sought to connect his churches together. We see that in the Gentile offering to the Jewish believers in Jerusalem and his seeking of support from the Roman church for his mission to Spain. He knew he needed people. So if we are to be a gospel church and get the gospel message to the world, we've got to do the same. We as a church need to be networked. We need to work with other ministries and organizations that have the same values and the same focus as we do. We need to partner with other churches and groups that can help us do more than we could do on our own. And that's a big part of our multiply vision. That is the vision of Blue Valley. It is to become a multiplying church that is actively establishing campuses locally and planning autonomous churches locally regionally, nationally, and internationally. That is who we are. And if we want to do that, then we're going to need to network with other organizations like the North American Mission Board we used to plant a church in Martin City, Compassion International, which we used to plant a church in Brazil, Mission Southside, who we work closely with locally. We're just one church with two campuses and a Spanish-language mission on two small little dots on this planet But by networking with others like Paul did, like the early church did, we can have a global impact. Gospel church is networked. That's third. Here's the fourth and last thing we learn here about a gospel church. Number four, a gospel church is grounded. It's grounded. Paul closes his great letter, maybe his greatest letter, in the most fitting way possible with a doxology. That word doxology simply means a praise to God. So after all we've seen in Romans, after all we've talked about, what else is there left to do but praise God? So that's what Paul does. And he he ties in here. It's really an amazing few verses. He ties in this praise, all the major themes of this whole letter. 
He comes full circle with all of his points like a good preacher. Here we go. Look again at verse 25. He says, Now to him who's able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. So where does our strength come from in the Christian life? It comes from God through the gospel. Man, if I've said it a million times, I'll say it a million more. The gospel is not just the first step of the Christian life. It is the Christian life. We don't begin with this gospel message and then grow with other stuff. The gospel is the source of our strength. It's the very means by which we grow. That's one of the major points of the whole letter. The gospel is for all of life. We need to know it, believe it, trust in it, then wash, rinse, repeat. Then Paul says next in his doxology, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. Here we see another theme of this letter, that the gospel is God's plan for all time. It's plan A. It's the message of the whole Bible. The prophetic writings, that's the Old Testament. They too point us to the gospel of Jesus. And it's been made known to all nations. There's another theme, that the gospel's for all people. This message about Jesus is meant to be taken to the whole world. And it's gone out. Here's another theme. According to the command of the eternal God. The gospel is a part of God's sovereign plan. He's working all of this together for the good of his people and the glory of his name. Why? He says to bring about the obedience of faith. There's another theme of this book. The only right way to respond to the gospel message is faith. It's to receive it in faith through Jesus. And that's how we're saved and justified and changed forever. So these few verses right here, it's a whole big summary of the whole letter. And it leads to this final word in verse 27. He says, to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. That's the final word of the whole book right there. God gets the glory. It's all to him. It's all to his glory forevermore. This is all about God and what he has done by his power for his people. The focus is on him, rightly so. And therefore, our praise should be to him. And we give that praise and glory, how? Through Jesus Christ. God has accomplished all this great gospel plan through Jesus. Jesus is the pinnacle. He's the center point. He's the key to the whole gospel. It's because of what he did. He left heaven to come to the earth that we might know God in flesh. He lived a perfect life fulfilling the law we never could. He died on the cross in the place for our sins. And he rose from the dead to defeat death and give us eternal life. So the glory comes through Jesus to God forevermore. And that's the message that a gospel church is grounded on. That's our foundation. That's who we are. That's what we build on. All right, we're not looking for the next latest and greatest thing. All right, we aren't riding the cultural wave of the day and what's new and what's hot. We aren't drifting along with the changing winds of society despite what might now seem offensive. We stay fixed, anchored, grounded upon this gospel message about Jesus and the truth of his word. That's a gospel church. That's what makes a church a healthy, biblical church. It's diverse, vigilant, networked, and grounded. And we see all that in Romans 16 at the close of this incredible letter. 
So here's the question we need to end with today. Are we a gospel church? Are we this kind of church? Surely there are areas where we fall short. So what are we doing to better become a gospel church? And what part can you play in all this? You know, often when we want our church to change or to grow, we look at the pastors, the staff, the deacons, and obviously leadership's important. But you are the church too. You help determine how healthy, how biblical, how gospel-oriented we are. So are you a gospel person? Have you made the decision to personally trust in Jesus and believe in this message? Are you someone who personally treasures and values the gospel and Jesus above everything else? And how does that impact the rest of your life? If we're going to be a gospel church, it takes all of us, the youngest to the oldest, being gospel people. Listen, if the gospel is not central to our lives Monday through Saturday, then we can't show up on Sunday and expect it to magically become important. It starts with each of us committing our lives to the message of Jesus, giving everything, surrendering all, and then helping our church be a church committed to the message of Jesus and being a gospel church. Let's go to the Lord now in prayer.